Sasswa is a show about Bigfoot. It's recorded for the skeptics, the believers, the knowers, the hopers, and those who just have a casual interest in the subject. For more information, visit our Facebook page. This is Saswa, a show about Bigfoot. I am one of your hosts, Mark Matsky, and it is my delight to introduce to you Andy Matsky, my co-host. Hello there. How are you doing? Doing well. Doing pretty well. It's quite warm. It's quite warm. That's a good thing, though. It's summertime, and that's enabled us to get out and about. Yes, over we went the past to couple days. Cuyahoga Valley National Park. Um. This weekend, that was fun. Went to, what is it, Buttermilk Falls? Brandywine? Brandywine. Brandy milk? <laughs> um, That's a good drink, I understand. Um, if you're having trouble getting to sleep, oh, brandy milk should take care of that. <laughs> Sasswood brand, brandy milk. Um, <laughs> it is indeed hot. Um, what else is up? Uh, well, there's plenty going on. On the small town monsters front, I guess we can lead by saying a big, huge congratulations to Seth Breedlove, who is the originator of this program and the head honcho at STM. Big, big news over the past week, and that is that the Mothman of Point Pleasant is sitting at number one on Amazon's documentary release chart, thanks to all the people who have been watching the film and renting it or buying it. It's just uh, exceeded all expectations. It was on number nine, I believe, of new releases in any category, passing up such movies as Logan and Star Wars Rogue One. Take that, Rogue One. (laughs) Yeah. Lucasfilm is crying, I'm sure, at this point. But, um, I mean, what can you say? It's just, I think it's a testimony to the hard work that Seth has put in making connections with his audience and the um, quality of the movie itself. Yes. It's, it's, thank you to everyone who's watched it or read it, like you said, Dad. It's just, I remember watching it. I believe Seth sent us like a early cut, and I think it was like my birthday, like the night of my birthday. Do you remember this? Yeah, And we sorta. stayed up till like midnight <laughs> watching it. Yes. And I was... It was so worth it. It was so worth it. And just the thought of, will I be able to get to sleep tonight after watching this? It was a great feeling because <laughs> that hasn't happened after watching something in a long time. And I like that sometimes, except when I'm like, why can't I get to sleep? Yeah. What I just was had to it? push injured cold out of my head. Okay, I was going to ask, what was it about the film in particular that uh, it was? It just has a very creepy feel to it, the whole Mothman phenomenon. And the way it looked at, from beginning to end was is very interesting. I don't think a lot of documentaries on the Mothman topic do that. And I really enjoyed that. And then, like, the talking about um, Braxton County Monster and stuff like that was really interesting. What's the other name for that? Is that the main name for that? Flatwoods. Flatwoods, that's it. Sorry. I fail my duties as <laughs> oh, yes. co-host. No, most people would not know it as Braxton County Monsters, so it's actually... That's how it popped in my head the yeah, first time. Yeah, that's actually... Shows your Flatwoods knowledge Flatwoods County. Um, 
Anything else? Yeah, I think also just to um, stay in the STM lane for one more moment, for the time being, Boggy Creek Monster is available on Amazon Prime. Tell your friends like I did. Yeah, and it's cool. It's um, it's fun to go back and watch that movie, actually, I've... because it's been a while for me. And so to be looking at it. Um, I've watched the opening 10 great. minutes like three yeah. times since it's been on Amazon Prime. And the one time I sort of um, I had to stop watching it because it was getting late and I knew I'd watch the whole thing. So go and watch that. I mean, it it's it's like it's like Mothman in the way it's definitely creepy. But I I really looking back on it, I really enjoy Lyle's narration more than I did watching it the first two times. It's kind of like, I'm Lyle Blackburn, and it's like this really upbeat narration, and I really enjoy that. Yeah, it's perfect. I mean, it's just perfect in that regard, isn't it? It's like, because he wrote the book, and Mm -hmm. he's the one who's created all these relationships with the people of Falk, it's just perfect in every way to have his narration on that. Let's. Um, that, I guess that would count as a news desk item. We've got yeah. a few more. One is just a reminder to our listeners, especially those in the Ohio area, that uh, we're inside a month until the Willoughby Hills Sasquatch Small Town Monsters Meetup. Uh, that's taking place July 5th and 6th, starting at 6 p.m. each evening. The first night, it'll be us talking about Bigfooty things. And the second night, it will be a screening of Boggy Creek Monster. So it's our own little um, cooperative effort with our library system in Northeast Ohio, which is second to none, in my opinion, and the STM crew. It's our own little Bigfoot conference is the way I'm thinking of this, and uh, hope to see you there. Uh, we'll be hanging out. Come for Boggy Creek Monster. Stay for the Bigfooty things. <laughs> That's what popped in my head. I'm not quite sure why. There's another thing that I wanted to touch on as well, and that is we got a word this week from uh, the Big Sky Bigfoot Conference, and I just wanted to give the information on that. We have another great Big Sky Bigfoot Conference coming up soon, September 22nd through 23rd, at the Bitterroot River Inn in beautiful Hamilton, Montana. I hope you can join us this year, 50th anniversary of the iconic Patterson-Gimlin film footage. Come explore this enduring mystery and meet a ton of cool folks. Conference tickets are currently available at a limited time, 15% discount at www.bigskybigfootconference.com. Get them while they're hot. I know many of you have already purchased tickets. Thank you. Presenters will include Becky Cook, Dr. Jeff Meldrum, Joe Hauser, Mark Merzel, Tom Broadhead, and Thomas Ertz. Misty Alibaugh is the event MC, and one Mr. Seth Breedlove will also be in attendance to present as well as to screen Boggy Creek Monster, The Truth Behind the Legend, at the Roxy Theater in Missoula, Montana, on Thursday, September 21st. And, of course, there will be a Q&A with that as well. Shout out to our friends at Creature Replica and Bozeman Paranormal for agreeing to donate to this event. So, once again, if you're interested in attending, check out BigSkyBigFootConference.com. It should prove to be a really cool event Um, I'm tapped out completely on vacation days, so I won't be going to Montana as much as I would like to, but it sounds like a a pretty cool affair. Yeah, sounds really enjoyable. That theater showing sounds really cool. 
We should write some article about uh, synchronicities and STM showings and Roxy theaters. We should call it the Roxy Factor. <laughs> yeah. See, I like that. Look for that April 1st of next year. <laughs> so, tonight's show is about weird Bigfoot. We were inspired by our recent trip to Pennsylvania to look into the more outer edge of the Bigfoot topic. Um, in this episode, I don't know exactly what we'll be talking about, but I know it will not be related to directly related to the Chestnut Ridge area. This is a non-Chestnut Ridge weird Bigfoot episode. Yeah. Right. So the uh, our source material is going to be taken largely... Uh, should probably say exclusively, from Jerome Clark and Lauren Coleman's book, Creatures of the Outer Edge. And like Andy said, the the whole trip to Chestnut Ridge sort of inspired us in terms of weird Bigfoot reports, and that's something that I've always had an interest in. In some ways, the weirder, the better. And not because necessarily um, I buy into the uh, reports as they happen, but just the... You know, it's one. Even the the title of the episode in this topic is sort of humorous when you stop to think about it. I mean, most people would think Bigfoot is weird in and of itself. So then to say weird Bigfoot adds an extra layer of strangeness to it, which I guess I'm pretty comfortable with and interested in. And fortunately, people have um, historically taken these reports on sort of a face value basis. And not to draw any conclusions about them, but just to say this is what people have reported. And I'm always interested in those. And I think a lot of people are. Because um, it brings up a lot of subjects, and I wanna, don't want to go deeply into any of them, <laughs> actually. But, um, you know, questions of, and I guess Stan Gordon, in the times that he's been on the show, has hinted at this, or stated it outright, that, you know, I think many reports come in, and they have Bigfoot in them, as well as other weird things. And there's a tendency, if you're into Bigfoot, to just isolate the Bigfoot part of that and sort of leave the other weird stuff out. Uh, but unfortunately, that can't be done in a number of reports, or it shouldn't be done. It has to be acknowledged that perhaps Bigfoot is part of a bigger weird picture. And that's where the early Lauren Coleman and Jerry Clark were coming from when they wrote this book. In an interview that Seth and I did for Sasswet in the Lauren Coleman episode, he talked about how he has stepped away from some of the conclusions that he made from this era when uh, Creatures of the Outer Edge was written. But at the same time, he said he doesn't step away from the reports themselves. They wanted to republish, and they did republish Creatures from the Outer Edge and The Uninvited in order just to get the data out there, not to draw any conclusions about the reports or try to say why they think these things happen, but they felt that these should be out there for people to check out and draw their own conclusions on. So that's sort of the spirit in which we're going to offer these reports tonight. And Andy really doesn't know any of them that are coming. I sort of lit a fire under him when I said, I'm going to give you the real story of Ape Canyon. And I was like, ooh, what's that? And he's like, I'm not going to tell you the sass one. <laughs> three hours later, here we are. Here we are. So I suppose that would be the best place to start is the real story, the unedited, uncut, uncensored version Uh-oh. of <laughs> of Fred Beck. 
So Beck's version suggests something very unusual, and this is now getting into the text of the book. Beck's version is based on his own obscure, out-of-print booklet, I Fought the Ape Men of Mount St. Helens, which Beck and his son R.A. Beck published privately in 1967. One night early in this century, two young brothers working in a logging camp near Kelso, Washington, heard a rustling sound outside their tent. Peering anxiously outside, they were terrified to see a huge, hairy, upright figure watching them. Finally, the creature lumbered back into the woods. The Beck brothers, who had never heard of the Bigfoot, then known only to the Indians, were perplexed by the whole episode. Finally, one of them convinced himself the thing had been a bear. But Fred, the other brother, was not so sure. He had seen many bears in his time, and he did not think this was one of them. Later on in July 1924, to be precise, Fred Beck's suspicion that he had seen something far out of the ordinary would receive spectacular confirmation. For six years prior to that date, Beck and his partner had been prospecting for gold in the Mount St. Helens and Lewis River area in southwestern Washington. In the beginning, before they built a cabin, they lived in a tent below a small mountain called Pumi Butte. Nearby, a creek flowed, and along it there was a moist sandbar about an acre in size where the prospectors would go to wash their dishes and get drinking water. Each Early one morning, one of them came running to the camp and urged his fellows to follow him back to the creek, where he showed them two huge, somewhat human-like tracks sunk four inches deep in the center of the sandbar. There were no other tracks anywhere nearby. Either whatever made them had a 160-foot stride, the men reasoned, or, quote, something dropped from the sky and went back up, unquote. As time passed, the miners came upon other similar tracks, which they could not identify. The largest of them was 19 inches long. After they had built their cabin, Beck and the four other miners working their gold claim, the Vander White, would hear a strange thudding, hollow thumping noise in broad daylight. They could not find the cause, though they suspected one of the number might be playing tricks on them. That proved not to be the case, since even when the group were gathered together, the sound continued all around them. They thought it sounded as if, quote, there's a hollow drum in the earth somewhere and something is hitting it, unquote. Those were not to be the last strange sounds they would hear either. Early in July 1924, a shrill whistling, apparently emanating from atop a ridge, pierced the evening quiet. An answering whistle came from another ridge. These sounds, along with a booming thumping, as if something were pounding its chest, continued every evening for a week. By now thoroughly unnerved, the men had taken to carrying their rifles with them when they went to the spring, about a hundred yards from the cabin. Beck and a man identified as Hank were drawing water from the spring when suddenly Hank yelled and raised his gun. Beck looked up and saw, on the other side of a little canyon, a seven-foot ape-like creature standing next to a pine tree. The creature, a hundred yards away from the two men, dodged behind the tree. When it poked its head around the tree, Hank fired quick shots, three of them, spraying bark but apparently not hitting the creature, which disappeared from sight for a short while. It reappeared 200 yards down the canyon, and this time Beck got off three shots before it was gone. Hurriedly, Beck and Hank returned to the cabin and conferred with the other two men there. The third was elsewhere at the time. They agreed to abandon the cabin, but not until daybreak. It would be too risky, they felt, to try to make it to the car in the darkness. The four got their belongings together in preparation for the move, then settled down for a good night's sleep, which, as it turned out, they did not get. At midnight, they awakened suddenly to a tremendous thud against the cabin wall. Some of the chinking which had been knocked loose from between the logs fell on Hank, who was pinned underneath. Beck, could, Beck had to help 
him free himself. Then, as they heard what sounded like many feet tramping and running outside, they grabbed their guns, preparing for the worst. Hank peered through the open space left by the dislodged chinking. The cabin had no windows, and spotted three, quote, apes, unquote, together. From the sound of things, there were many more. The creatures proceeded to pelt the cabin with rocks. Though terribly frightened, the other two miners were huddling in the corner in a state of shock. Beck said they should fire on the creatures only if they physically attacked the cabin. This would show that the miners were only defending themselves. But within a very short time, the apes were attacking the cabin. Some of them jumped on the roof, evidently in an effort to batter it down. In response, Beck and Hank fired through the roof. They were also forced to brace the door with a long pole taken from the bunk bed, since the creatures were furiously attempting to smash it open. Beck and Hank riddled the door with bullets. The attacks continued all night, punctuated occasionally by short, quiet interludes. At one point, a creature reached through the chinking space and grabbed an axe by the handle. Beck lunged forward, snatched the blade apart, and turned the axe upright so that the ape couldn't get it out. As he was doing so, a bullet from Hank's rifle narrowly missed his hand. The creature withdrew its arm and retreated. Finally, just before daybreak, the attack ended. The embattled miners waited for daylight, then cautiously stepped outside, guns in hand. A few minutes later, Beck stopped one of the creatures about 80 yards away, standing near the edge of the canyon. Taking careful aim, he shot three times and watched as it toppled over the cliff and fell down into the gorge 400 feet below. As quickly as they could get out of there, the miners departed, heading for Spirit Lake, Washington, and leaving $200 in supplies and equipment behind. They never returned to claim it. At Spirit Lake, Hank told a forest ranger about the experience. After the group had come home to Kelso, the story leaked to the newspapers and caused a sensation. Reporters found giant tracks at the scene, but no other traces of the creatures men believed they had shot at. The canyon where the episode allegedly occurred became known as Ape Canyon and still bears that name over 50 years later. In his booklet, Beck reveals that all his life, from his early childhood on, he had numerous psychic experiences, many of them involving supernatural quote-unquote people. He says that they found the mine they were working in 1924 through guidance from two quote spiritual beings unquote, one a buckskin-clad Indian the other a woman after whom they would name their mine, Vander White. Of the quote-unquote ape men, Beck writes, They are not entirely of this world. I was, for one, always conscious that we were dealing with supernatural beings, and I know that other members of the party felt the same. Beck believes the creatures now known as Sasquatch or Bigfoot come from another dimension and are a link between human and animal consciousness. They are composed of a substance that ranges between the physical and the psychical, Sometimes one more than the other, depending upon the degree of quote-unquote materialization. Because of their peculiar nature, none will ever be captured nor will bodies ever be found. Preposterous? The fantasies of an old man? Perhaps. But we must note here that no one except those resolutely determined to reject all Bigfoot reports has ever questioned Beck's testimony about the Ape Canyon shootout. If we accept that much, then we cannot honestly reject the unpalatable portions, however much we might like to do so. And if we accept the reality of the isolated set of footprints, for instance, then we're forced to consider seriously Beck's contention that the Bigfoot are not entirely of this world, either this, or we must reject the Ape Canyon story entirely. So writes Clark and Coleman. Your thoughts.
That's a great story. I have two points I want to make before I really get into my whole thoughts on this. One, I'm sorry for laughing in the middle of that, but psychical is just kind of a funny word to me. Two, I don't know if you could hear it, but I think mom was closing windows throughout the house while you were telling about the Ape Canyon attack. And so there's these thuds all around us this time. So it was kind of add to the dramatic effect. So it's a very interesting point. This story gets twisted around. It really does. Because it's like the Bigfoot was shot first, as I've heard, and then the Ape Canyon attack happened, but apparently not. So it's very interesting. Like The weirdest weird Bigfoot point to me is the one footprint. I think... To me, that's more interesting and makes you think more, even more than being shot at and not falling down, as is reported in some cases. Or, I guess, to be honest, there is some stuff that's happened that is weirder, but the ongoing one footprint, how? I mean, I guess it just... And that's something talked about a lot in psychical paranormal phenomenon is like one footprints found it's just weird to me what do you make of fred beck's background and experiences apart from ape canyon i think it's very interesting that they they named the mine after the spirit lady and also um like the indian that's that's very Native American. I'm sorry. It's just very interesting that he's had these experiences. Now, being 100% honest and looking at this from all angles, is this is he really experiencing this or is he not completely there? But then like the 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 Clark Coleman point is then can we trust Abe Canyon? And everyone would be like, "Oh, Abe Canyon was so And by Ape Canyon, no, I mean, like, everyone trusts it, and it's, like, concrete, Bigfoot proof. But what if... Here's an interesting point that they sort of make. What if Ape Canyon didn't happen, and it was... What was it then? So I'm kind of leaning in towards the microphone as I'm making these points. (laughs) So... Yeah, Lauren Coleman's the only person, any author that I'm aware of, and I'm sure there's probably others who have, but he's the only one that I've read who allows these other things about Beck to be said. And I just, I don't really feel like I need to draw any conclusions about that, but I just think it is emblematic of how these reports can get cherry-picked and the Bigfoot stuff drawn out and used to try to make points and some of these other more out there elements to the case get set aside. And for why? I mean, for what reason? Why, if you're willing to entertain the idea of ape-like creatures trying to smash and get into your cabin, then why not the other parts? It just reveals to me how, you know, the, the ape description helps to set in many people's minds that this is just simply a biological creature that we don't know about yet. And it, it raises more questions, of course, than it answers. But there you go. Here's, there's the full report on Ape Canyon. And I just 
find it very, very intriguing that there's those other parts to Beck that you don't usually get to hear. Next up is sort of taking us into Chestnut Ridge-esque territory, except it happened on the other side of the country, which I found pretty interesting. This takes place in the quite awesomely named Vader, Washington, V-A-D-E-R, winter 1970-71 and spring 1971. So here we are in the 70s. Probably my favorite decade for all of this stuff. On December 4th, 1970, Mrs. Wallace Bowers heard her children calling for her to come outside. Upon doing so, she discovered mysterious footprints in the inch-deep snow covering her farmyard. The footprints were very large, measuring 16 inches and 5 to 7 inches wide, she told an investigator. The night before, it had snowed, freezing hard afterwards. In comparison of weight, my husband's pickup truck never even went through the snow and ice upon his leaving for work. He leaves around 5.30 a.m., and he's a logger. The morning, we discovered the giant tracks or footprints alongside his truck in the drive. The prints were like black on white, as whatever made them was so heavy, it took the frozen snow with each step, plus leaving one-and-a-half-inch impressions in the frozen gravel beneath. Mrs. Bowers recalled that the family dog had acted oddly the night before as if sensing the presence of an intruder. Vader is in the middle of Bigfoot country, and the tracks in the snow resembled those attributed to the creature. At 7.15 a.m. three days later, on the 7th, the Bowers children again called their mother, this time to the window, where they were watching a, quote, bright star, unquote, which was moving across the sky. The object flew closer to the witnesses, and for ten minutes they were able to view it carefully. Its center appeared to be a dome around which a larger circle seemed to be revolving. It was deep orange in the center, with the light diffusing toward the outer edge, but with a definite bright rim. Mrs. Bowers said it seemed tipped sideways slightly, rather like an airplane banking, and then it hovered briefly over the nearby Bonneville power lines. After it left the power lines, it changed from orange to a bright clear light, and at one time seemed to make one last sweep closer, again turning orange. The children thought they saw a quote-unquote gray shape drop away from the UFO just before it vanished in the distance. During the sighting, Mrs. Bowers switched on the intercom in the house, only to hear a peculiar sharp sound. And the funny thing is, she said, we tried to use the intercom the night before and got that same sharp sound. But that was not to be all. Later in the week, the UFO sighting occurred on a Monday... Mrs. Bowers was putting a log in the living room fireplace when she saw the curtains moving in the boys' bedroom, which was visible from where she stood. All the children were in the living room with me, she said. All I could think of was getting them safely out of there. So I loaded them into the car and we left, but I definitely saw a shape in the bedroom as we drove away. (laughs) They returned only after Mr. Bowers had come home from work. I feel sure that it was probably a prowler, Mrs. Bowers said. We've had trouble in our neighborhood, and I don't think it's related to the others. But the footprints and the saucer, I don't know. Nonetheless, the prowler was a strange one. He took nothing. He rummaged through the bedrooms, but afterwards the Bowerses could find nothing gone. While it is of course impossible to prove anything, we cannot help thinking of the mysterious gray shape the children thought they saw, and then of the long tradition of bedroom apparitions. Very shortly, we'll encounter another case of prowlers who took nothing. Subsequently, according to Mrs. Bowers, quote, we had several months of strange noises in the night, something very heavy thudding across the yard, but we never saw anything. 
Our house is so well insulated, it's hard for us to even hear a car come into our drive. So it was really strange to be awakened by this thudding jar going across our yard. Every night it was around the same time it would wake us up between 2 and 3 a.m. Vader, Washington. I love Vader, Washington. I want to live in Vader, Washington. Um, the Prowler? I would freak out if that I saw some sort of shape and, like, the curtains moving. And then, like, the very... The, I'm getting ahead of myself. The <laughs> saucer sounds very Close Encounters of the Third Kind-esque, but this is before that movie came out, right? Mm-hmm. So... It's not like, oh, they saw Close Encounters and you saw it in real life because they're hippies and crazy. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, it's, they can't do that because it hadn't come out yet unless they were psychic because the ghost lady from the <laughs> mine came and told them about... Vander White showed up. Vander White showed up in Vader, Washington. Oh. <laughs> oh. The V connection. Look for that. April 1st <laughs> of 2019. I had to think there for a second. Um, What do you think? I would freak out. The Prowler thing is terrifying for me. Yeah, I don't like that at all. So let's just move past that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I think the one thing I'll say about this is it really gets my attention when you have multiple witness sightings. Now, it's one thing to be by yourself and claim to see something there's no way to corroborate that. It's just my word that I saw something weird, and you have to take it or leave it. But when you have multiple witnesses, like a family group, and you all see something and you sort of agree that you saw the same thing, then all of a sudden, to me, that changes things significantly. Because it's not just one person hallucinating, perhaps, or it's a ghost encounter. You're having an episode. It's, um, it's a group experience and you can back each other up so the footprints are crazy yeah i mean the pickup truck doesn't go that far though that's extremely unusual a skeptical argument is i think pickup trucks or at least nowadays are really good at weight distribution 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 that too i could talk that too (laughs) um so because when you think of it, it could be a really heavy creature, yet it's only spreading it on two big feet as opposed to big tires. I got really quiet during that last sentence. <laughs> big tires. Um, yeah. Okay. I don't know. I don't know what no, I'm thinking. That sounds very reasonable, but it is very, very odd as Obviously, well. it's not a Bigfoot. No. it's. I don't know. It's the only Sasquatch-related thing in that case, which I like. So what's up next? I just like hearing these stories. This is very entertaining. It is. Next up is from late January 1972. Skywalker, Dakota, <laughs> South Dakota. Chewbacca County. <laughs> I would move anywhere that was Chewbacca County. <laughs> this is Balls Ferry, California. So again, West Coast. Four teenage boys on their way to Battle Creek to fish on a dark, rainy night saw a brilliant, glowing object swoop over their car. Later, as they parked at the Battle Creek Bridge, they heard a noise, then a scream in the bush. We heard a blood-curdling scream, John Yerry's 16, recalled. I threw the light over in the brush, and there was this weird thing. 
The beast was about seven feet tall, dark brown or green, had a large teardrop-shaped ear, and was hunched over. It appeared to have lumps all over its body, quote, like pouches in a flight suit, unquote. It turned and ran. So did the witnesses. I was wondering what it was, Daryl Rich, 16, said, and at the same time I was turning to get out of there. James Yerries and Robbie Cross were already hightailing it back to the car, but when they got there, they were horrified to discover that it wouldn't start. They had to push it before it would. As they sped away, they all had the feeling that they were being watched and followed. Soon thereafter, Daryl saw what looked like firecrackers going off on the pavement, only without the accompanying sound. John saw them out of the rearview mirror, but soon their collective attention was captured by fiery objects, blue and white, orange and red, seen moving erratically in the open fields on the other side of the road. At one point, two of the glowing balls came together in the sky, while another time, one shot straight up and disappeared. One of the glowing objects, weirdly enough, took on the appearance of a human figure beside the road. What happened? Say it one more time. Okay. One of the glowing objects, weirdly enough, took on the appearance of a human figure beside the road. I'm not trusting the orb people anymore. <laughs> the orb people. Is that what you said? Yeah. <laughs> Strangely and suddenly, at the intersection of Deschutes and Dirch Roads, the lights disappeared. Racing back home, they told Daryl Rich's father, Dean Rich, of the incidents. The elder Rich, though somewhat skeptical, returned with the boys to the Battle Creek Bridge area and walked out into a nearby walnut orchard. All of a sudden, they heard an odd commotion in the darkness in front of them. As Rich would later describe it, it sounded like a real deep growl. It was a real weird type of sensation. It was something I'd never experienced before. The boys abruptly fled, and the father quickly followed suit. The growling, a long, nerve-wrenching, and that's four E's, five A's, a G, three H's, and three R's, continued as rich. (laughs) Feel free to try it out yourself. And send us the clip. (laughs) Continued as Rich ran backwards to his car. Once there, he and the boys held a brief conference and concluded that the thing was warning them to depart from its territory. It was trying, if it was trying to scare them, Rich said, it succeeded. The party went to Anderson, California police who returned to the area but found nothing. However, the lawmen said they doubted the story was a hoax. One officer remarked they seemed completely sincere. There was no hint of the funnies, or something else. They were really scared. Summing up the group's feelings, Daryl Rich speculated, I wonder if we saw something we shouldn't have. That's a weird-looking creature. Got the flight suit pockets, lumps. That's right up there with the Mohawk Bigfoot that we heard about. I mean, it's so weird because you have the weird creature... And you have the weird orb, UFO, whatever you want to call them, things happening at the same time, which is very interesting. And then the orb guy. That's weird. Orb people. Those orb people. This fall on Fox. Orb people. Now, there is a um, footnote to this case. And it says, another creature-related car stoppage supposedly occurred in October 1960 in the Monongahela National Forest near Marlington, West Virginia. While driving along a road behind a group of friends in a bus, 
W.C. Priestley reportedly encountered an eight-foot hairy ape-like monster with long hair standing straight up. Just moments before he saw the thing, his car engine suddenly had ceased working. I don't know how long I sat there, Priestley said, until the boys missed me and backed up the bus to where I was. It seemed the monster was very much afraid of the bus and dropped his hair, and to my surprise, as soon as he did this, my car started to run again. I didn't tell the boys what I had seen. The thing took off when the bus started. Priestley and the bus resumed their journey. Soon, however, the car began to sputter again. I could see the sparks flying from under the hood of my car as if it had a very bad short, and sure enough, there beside the road stood the monster again. The points were completely burned out of my car. The bus backed up again, and the creature fled into the forest. Priestley's was only one of a number of creature sightings made in West Virginia that year. Priestley on the bus goes round. So, we have the connection that Bigfoot's hair controls engines... I like it. Well, what does what does that suggest? If the if there's anything static electricity, yeah. If there's you anything, don't want them to touching it. you. <laughs> <laughs> he likes to drag his feet and give you the yeah, that's world's. That's why he has such big feet. The world's biggest just, shock. And when he puts his foot down, it goes super deep, and he stretches it out. He touches you, touches your engine. <laughs> zap. So he's, zap. <laughs> that's what zapping really is. He zaps the deer. Hey. Infrasound. You heard it here first. Infrasound. <laughs> okay, I was trying to say a word and it just didn't come out. Okay, uh, one my more. My voice gets deeper to indicate the truth. One, one more. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> one more report. This is from Washington State, fall of 1975. On October 1st, three youths out hunting near Rimrock Lake heard noises in the woods around them. Feeling they were being followed, they began hiking back to camp, which they reached around 9 p.m. They built a fire and were sitting in front of it when they heard still more noises. One of the group, Earl Thomas, 18, beamed his flashlight across a small pond nearby and spotted a pair of greenish-yellow eyes staring back at him. Thomas and Tom Gerstmer, 17, returned to camp to talk the matter over. Finally, all three carefully walked the short distance to the edge of the pond and shone the light again. This time they saw what the eyes were part of, an eight- or nine-foot hairy creature with human-like features. The thing shied away from the light. Evidently, despite its size, it was a creature of retiring disposition. This, however, was not enough to keep the badly frightened young men from firing upon it seven times with their rifles. (laughs) Immediately afterwards, they fled back to camp and grabbed their provisions. As they were doing so, the Bigfoot commenced to scream, which only added to their sense of panic. Gerstmer nearly wrecked his jeep in the haste to get away. When they got to Trout Lodge, they called the Yakima County Sheriff's Office. Later, Deputy Larry Gamache interviewed the three youths, and their testimony convinced him that they had definitely seen something. But for Earl Thomas, that was not the end of the episode. Dick Grover, who interviewed all the witnesses and kept in touch with them for a time after their original experience, reports these bizarre developments. A two-tone green four-wheel drive Bronco with Oregon license plates had for two weeks followed the Thomases to town. The car has been seen driving by their house three to four times a day. The car had also been driven into their driveway. The driver was never seen leaving his car. He was described as a middle-aged man in his 50s or 60s, medium build, gray hair, crew cut. He keeps his car clean and appears to be very interested in the Thomases. 
This investigator had the opportunity to be shown the vehicle and driver when he was interviewing Earl Thomas. Earl Thomas also stated that threats have been made on his life. These threats were made via phone on two different occasions. On one occasion, the caller mail told him, don't step out your door, we'll blow your head off. It's possible that a wealthy lunatic with a great deal of time on his hands decided to frighten Thomas for some reason, but that seems improbable in view of the fact that the harassment continued for several months after Grover made his report. Readers with a background in ufology will recognize this activity as reminiscent of behavior associated with the fabled men in black, who reportedly have threatened some individuals who have had UFO sightings. Curiously, even the observation that the stranger keeps his car clean has precedence in MIB reports, for witnesses sometimes remark on the clean or new appearance of the vehicles these figures are said to drive. Infrastatic was the word I was trying to say earlier. Wow. Not infrasal. That's very interesting. Here's a creature over there. Let's shoot at it. And then the, the person following seems very weird. To me, I think that's one of the weirdest parts of it. To me, I don't know why I stopped there. So, (laughs) (laughs) moving on. It seems this. Where was this again? That one was Washington, I believe. Washington. It seems like when there's weird mystery men, it's always out of state plates. It's not government plates. It's out of state plates to like one or two states away. Because there was, I'm sorry to bring up Chestnut Ridge again, but with Chestnut Ridge Mystery Men, it was an Ohio plate. It's like one state away mystery plates. That seems weird to me. Why? This is a current of Bigfoot reports, it would seem, especially the very strange ones, that the the unfortunate witnesses to these things have events and follow-up um incidents that happen in their lives that seem to compound the strangeness. And like you said, that's a feature of something that happened in Pennsylvania in the 70s, happened here in Washington in the 70s. It just makes you really wonder what might be going on and how, you know, how anyone would know in the first place that these people had these encounters. It's very strange. The other thing that links some of these reports tonight is the fact that there were police investigations. So it's a matter of public record, I would assume, that they got called out to a really weird report. And in most cases, the those interviewed are seen to be sincere, at least sincerely scared, by what has happened to them. So that is sort of just dipping your toe into the world of weird Bigfoot. And um, I don't know. Do you have any conclusions based on what we've heard, either tonight or in total? I think some, you have to, have to, if you're into Bigfoot, be open to this stuff. Because if you're not open to it, then you're denying facts of things that have happened. So be open to it. And I know this is kind of like my closing point, what, two episodes ago? one or two episodes ago, where, like, just go out and do it. My advice is when you're out there, be open to this. Don't laugh things off right away because 
if you're there and you're hearing these people talk, it's very moving, and it really leads you to believe what's, or not believe, because you can't believe this, but makes you wonder what exactly is happening, because the U, bringing up, like, the UFO end of things, it ranges so much, yet there seems to be similar ties, like, the orange colors of the lights was brought up in something would in Pennsylvania, and there's all these connections, it's just, if we all were into this, I'm, I'm not, I mean, I'm not forcing people, like, be open to this and listen to it, but if we all worked a little harder to try to understand this, we might get some answers. <laughs>